you know, is there is there any advice that all you have about building contracts or APIs that are really, really good experiences for other developers to build on? Simplify, simplify, simplify. I think the midwit trap of code development is to stack as many specialized features and as much difficult code and as many fancy interfaces into a project as you can just to, to show that you're capable because it is it is impressive that you know how to do these things compared to a novice coder. The real advanced trick is how do you make something not so complicated that you can't find a bug in it, but so simple that nobody, so simple that it's understandable by everyone. You, If you're trying to build a key building block in the space, other people's attention is the scarcest resource. And so things have to be both dead simple to understand and dead simple to implement without ways to screw it up. One argument that I've heard, for example, is if you have a simple API and then somebody comes in and says, hey, there's this weird edge case that 1% of users might use. We should stick it in there. And initially, it seems like there's no harm because A, you haven't, you haven't broken any existing functionality and B, if this turns out to not be what people need, then they can just choose to not use it. So what's the harm in adding this, in adding this complex edge case? But it turns out the harm is in the attention People come to your website or come to your documentation and instead of there being one clear way to do things, now there are seven ways and they have to go consult outside resources to figure out what the trade-offs are of each. Hello and welcome to another episode of Devs Do Something. Today's guest is Fubar, a dev, writer, and auditor who is also a DeFi and NFT founder. You may know Fubar from Twitter, where he is a grade A meme poster and prolific commentator on all things crypto. He's also the founder of Delegate.cash, an immutable primitive to safely claim airdrops for vaulted NFTs. In this episode, we deep dive several of Fubar's projects, including Delegate.cash and a repo he calls Bored and Dangerous. We also asked Fubar how he personally levels up as an engineer and how he approaches things like smart contract security, trade-offs between immutability and mutability, and drafting EIPs. If you're a crypto native who wants to learn how a thriving Anon dev approaches their craft, then this episode is for you. I hope you enjoy. Are you a DAO? or crypto native business with salaried employees? Or do you perhaps work for one? If so, whether you're a team of five or 500, your organization can save time and money by streaming salaries with Superfluid, who also happens to be the beloved producer of this podcast. With salary streaming, your management team no longer has to worry about executing multi-sig operations every month or manually executing hundreds of separate transactions to pay their team. Contributors and employees, on the other hand, get paid by the second, which, to be honest with you, is a pretty killer benefit on the receiving end. Those of us getting paid via stream can connect our wallet to the Superfluid dashboard and see our balances ticking up in real time. It's kind of mesmerizing and feels like you're being jacked 10 years in the future. 
When you're paid in a stream, it flows in perpetuity until your team needs to adjust compensation, which effectively puts Web3 payroll on autopilot. Salary streaming is easy to set up thanks to our recent integration with CoinShift, the leading crypto treasury management platform. In just a few clicks, you can securely set up payroll for hundreds of employees in just a single transaction, all from CoinShift's dashboard. If this sounds like something you're interested in exploring, you should visit superfluid.finance/payroll and book a salary streaming demo today. Thanks to all of our sponsors. Let's get on to the episode. All right, so we are here today with Fubar. Welcome. Thanks. Great to be here. Yes. Yes, we're pumped that you you came on and joined us today. Uh, the first question we tend to ask everyone who comes on uh, is, is a bit of a general one, but it's always good. Uh, how did you get involved in crypto? Great question. It's been a bit of a winding path, I would say. Started out in general computer science and then went hard into the artificial intelligence, machine learning world for several years, actually briefly set some world records on that front. But within the ML space, kept getting pulled more and more towards open source work, both using existing open source repos, pushing stuff back, and generally that open philosophy. Got pulled into crypto when I realized it was the supercharging of the open source movement. You get open source, open state, everything shared in real time. So started tinkering, did a bunch of fun stuff, got pulled in more and more and more. And before you know it, pulling 80 hours a week across the DeFi, NFT, and more space. So here we are. I love it. I love it. Yeah, it looks like you, you come from also, I think... I think a, a little bit of a math background as well. It's, I, I feel like I either read somewhere or heard you say somewhere in a separate podcast that you got very into like the, like both the CS and mathematical side of, of ML where you were involved there. And correct me if I'm wrong yeah. on that, by the way. Uh, yeah, actually went, went pretty deep into the math side of things. Um, a lot of programming was to enable that. I think that's what really piqued my interest on the ML side of things is... You need, it's not just coding. You need some pretty well-founded mathematical intuition and whatnot. And then same thing with crypto. Obviously, there's a ton of programming involved, but you have to, you have to know what a hash function is. You have to know what consensus mechanisms are. Uh, there's a lot of security and stability parameters that come along in a lot of these DeFi protocols. So I'd say math is just the common underpinning. Still have a ton of curiosity there. Nice. Are there any pieces of math that you found in crypto so far that are particularly beautiful to you or anything you, you think is like particularly cool, whether it's on like the, maybe like the more economic side and dealing with like protocols or like DeFi protocols, I mean, or some like the hardcore cryptography and ZK stuff. Is there anything you found that you really like? Yeah, several things. First of all, the ZK cryptography is probably the most unintuitively beautiful stuff I've come across. Um, in terms of, in terms of economic models, I've loved experiment, experimenting with different ones in the NFT space. For example, a lot of stuff has been first price auctions, but I was able to push forward refundable Dutch auctions in an on-chain trustless way that hadn't really been done before. And I think now has been 
used by even even top artists like Tyler Hobbs. Um, on the other, I think, mathematically beautiful elements that we have, I've been thinking a lot about the lending platforms and the risk that gets taken. You have Ben Dow for NFTs. They lend against board apes. And you have, obviously, the, the Aves of the fungible token world. And there's been a spree of vulnerable parameters on that front. So what does, and currently these lending platforms are all managed by on-chain governance rather than strict mathematical models. They say this gets an 80% LTV, this gets a 20% LTV. And then you adjust those as needs be. But lending as option selling and therefore should be priced as option selling is a fascinating element to me. I think that's a critical piece we've only started to explore and is necessary for true on-chain immutability. How do you how do you plug in external liquidity into your risk parameters to avoid a solid type situation? And that's another one. I think the VR GDA mechanism that's come out of Paradigm with Art Gobblers is is absolutely elegant. The way the multipliers stack additively, the way that it pairs fungible and non-fungible tokens together. I think there's a ton of amazing innovation that have been obscured by highly volatile price action. So I'm excited to keep digging into that and see what else I might apply to. For sure. For sure. So we'll we'll get we'll come back to some of the ZK stuff thing toward the end. And we definitely want to get into some of the work you've done on NFT development. But I think one thing it might be interesting to ask now, uh, for, for those of our listeners who are working on NFT protocols, are building kind of innovative new NFT projects, do you have any advice for them as someone who's experimented with different economic models and done a, and done a bit of research and who has who also has a math background? Do you have any advice for NFT devs? on how to to like structure a solid economic model or auction process for their project so much i would say it depends at what level it depends what level you're going at um key thing is to often try one new parameter or one new model at a time as the world has to learn about things i think too much too much newness and user bases can get overwhelmed or not fully appreciate what's been developed in terms of running. So in terms of running a proper NFT project, obviously there are first and foremost, most important of all is just basic programming security tips. You want to make sure the smart contract is rock solid, has no security holes that let people steal money from it or that let things get frozen or give undue admin access. So go above and beyond when it comes to testing. Um, write far more tests than you think are necessary because the hourly rate on saving thousands or even millions of dollars is incredibly high. Um, when it comes to what's the optimal economic model, I think we see a couple of different ones out there. The, the first, obviously, is free mint plus royalties. Um, and that can be a good way to get your name out there, but it can also encourage excessive volatility on the creator side because creators get paid when things get sold. And so that 
is not necessarily aligned with just dry with value being driven to the collection. Um, there's also obviously fixed fixed price. The danger of that is that like something costs 0.08 and there are 10,000 of these to sell. The trick with that is you either are oversubscribed, in which case it's often bots that get it all and not like actively engage human members of the community or it's undersubscribed and you have this overhang that price can never surpass because people can just mint. So I think it's important to get a good feeling for how much demand there is for something. Um, And one of the best ways to do that is a Dutch auction, which in my opinion maximizes creator surplus where you start the price the price starts high and then it goes low and people can buy anytime in between so you find a market clearing price for whatever the supply is a key problem of traditional dutch auctions is that your biggest fans your best supporters um who really believe in it often get screwed because they pay a high price and then it drops more and then other people pay a low price so how you get around that is a refundable Dutch auction where people pay whatever price they pay. But then the price that it sells out at is everybody gets refunds who paid above that point. So it encourages, it frees people up to go about their day, stick in a bid, and then come back and claim their refund and everybody is on equal footing. So that seems like the optimal. And then there's the whole whitelist game of just pick and choose to people who you think would be good stewards of a project. Um, and that apl- applies to all economic models, really. So those are my thoughts. Nice. So you have a great piece on royalties, actually, that I'll, I'll make sure we link in the show notes um, that goes into some of the problems you mentioned with like, vol- like you're basically rewarding maybe the wrong things in, in a project that tries to monetize primarily via royalties. But I think some of your auction comments around like Dutch auctions and the work you've done on refundable Dutch auctions are all very interesting. One thing you mentioned there at the beginning, like the prerequisite to uh, picking a new interesting economic model to try out is to focus on security though. Uh, And I think the really, you know, a really good way of saying it, I guess, is to think about the hourly rate of the money you're potentially saving by writing more tests, right? It's, it's unbounded. And the problem is I think people don't normally think about that. They think about it as like, what's the hourly rate you know, of doing this versus doing some other form of software development? And they don't think of it as that different, but, but you are potentially saving yourself and a lot of people a lot of money and a lot of, like, a lot of chaos and embarrassment. So I think that's a, a really good way of thinking about it. But how, how do you personally think about smart contract security more broadly? This is something we like to ask almost every guest and I'd like your thoughts as well. How do I think about security more broadly? Just smart, think, smart contract security specifically. Mm-hmm. I think, well, first, it's significantly... It, people don't pay enough attention to it. Um, it's still viewed somewhat as a cost center rather than a profit center. Um, I'm really happy to see better and better tools coming out to support it for... For a while, I mean, my tech stack progression within the EVM world went from Truffle to Hardhat to Foundry now. 
And it's been an order of magnitude quality of life improvement every single time. Uh, <laughs> Truffle, I remember stepping through debugger, stepping through 20,000 debugger sessions operations manually to try to see what a variable value was. Hardhat brought console.log to the world and then Foundry finally lets you get rid of async await madness and operate, write your, write your EVM test within the EVM. So I'm really happy to see the tool set improving. And you've also got, I think, work on fuzzing that's getting better and better. Um, but it's still, it's, still a very, it's still a very hard problem. There are a lot of hidden, there are a lot of hidden dangers that can come about and you learn them a lot of times only through hard experience. Hopefully somebody gets hacked. Hopefully not you. Hopefully you can learn through vicarious experience, but it's always painful to have those lessons. I think EVM security has stepped it up ever since we had the DAO hack and realized that reentrancy was bad. (laughs) And now we're moving on. But then we also developed more advanced tools like flash loans that didn't always exist um, that prevent novel attack vectors. Um, and now and now you have to look at what does full block MEV look like? What does multi-block Oracle attack MEV look like? So I think both the defenses and the attacks are advancing and it's important to be up to speed. Yeah, absolutely. I think... Um... It's it's interesting that you bring up things like flash loans as well, right? Because I think a lot of times when we're when we're thinking about hacks and bugs, right, it tends to be you know some sort of problem in the software. Maybe you're not handling something correctly, or you know maybe there's some kind of reentrancy issue or something. But you know when it comes to things like, especially getting into flash loans and Oracle attacks, right? Like these economic attacks are, are also like they're they're very important, right, to pay attention to. But it seems like they're a lot a lot harder to catch as well, right? Like I, I don't. I don't see that being something that you can necessarily, um, you know, catch in a, in a fuzzing test, right? Like you need to be aware of sort of these like game theory bugs, I guess, right? Yeah, they aren't necessarily a coding bug. I mean, the code compiles. That's, that's one of my big lessons from the machine learning world, actually, is you have to learn that just because your code compiles doesn't mean it's correct. Um, it just means it's doing something. And you see that with economic behavior a lot of times. So the obviously you can make a syntax error, but you can also make a game theory error of bad risk parameters or reentrancy or something like that. And those are the big ones. Those are the ones that get caught. Um, you almost want your code to throw an error early because if it throws an error late, 12 months after deployment, that might be millions of dollars lost. So it's, it's a different paradigm of the code compiles it works to the code compiles now let's look at the game theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's probably still room for tooling to be built to simulate some of these game theory and economic things. So hopefully somebody works on on that. And I'm sure somebody is thinking about it. Um, what, so on, on this topic, though, of uh, bugs and issues with security that, that don't come from something directly in the software, uh, one, one issue here is what happens when approving transactions with a wallet that holds a couple of valuable NFTs, right? And you've actually built 
a really excellent project called Delegate Cash that helps to solve some more. I mean, there is there is a technical solution you built, but I think it does solve a problem that goes beyond just a technical. Like it's it's not only bounded to the to, to the technical, right? This is also more of a human and UX problem. So I'd love for you to, to talk to our to our listeners about what Delegate Cash is and why it exists. Yeah, there's this seeming paradox of decentralized self-custody and worldwide adoption, where some people think it's impossible for decentralized crypto, true crypto, um, on-chain, not your keys, not your coins, crypto to scale to the Robinhood users of the world because it's too complicated and too hard. And to be fair, we have some very painful user experiences right now. Um, everybody is directing is interacting directly with the base layer and people sign MetaMask transactions. The transaction they're signing is just a hex blob. How do you know what OXF4CB55670 means? And so we're getting slightly better human readable transaction simulation methods. But there's always this existential risk of your cryptos on this wallet. If you ever screw up or ever misread a transaction, everything could be wiped from you. And we have, I think, tiers tiers of safety within that. People can have hot browser extension burner wallets that only hold a small amount of crypto. And you can have hardware wallets that are siloed devices that can't have malware on them. And then you can get more advanced multi-sig smart contract wallets that can set certain limits on withdrawals and threshold signers and whatnot. But ultimately, at the end of the day, a lot of these solutions sacrifice significant amounts of convenience for long-tail security, security that's hard to see in the moment. And so my thinking in developing Delegate Cash was, is there a way to do non-custodial, on-chain, true decentralized protection of your assets, but still let you do day-to-day interactions without worrying that you'll lose your life savings. Um, The specific case in point here is board apes getting fished. Um, every, Every week you log on and somebody else has signed a malicious transaction on a phishing site and lost hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars worth of NFTs. So, but you can't stick these assets into uh, into a vault and lock them away forever either because you often have token gating um, where board apes are eligible to claim a new airdrop for a mutant serum, for example, but it requires that you claim the airdrop from the wallet holding the board ape. And so users have been trained to make new transactions, make new, make new interactions w- with the wallet holding their valuable assets. So what Delegate Cash does is it enables you to make an explicit on-chain power of attorney from a cold wallet to a hot wallet, where the cold wallet can be a ledger tucked away in secure physical storage, and the hot wallet is just a burner browser extension or a mobile app 
or something like that that you do day-to-day interactions with. By signing one transaction from your cold wallet, you say, I give permission for this hot wallet to act on my behalf, but not to move any of my NFTs. So then your hot wallet can go in when you're claiming, say, the board Ape airdrop or trying to verify your tokens for a role in a Discord server. And that verifier can just check that you've delegated to the hot wallet and then let the hot wallet claim instead of having to have you connect your cold wallet itself. So there's a whole host of other use cases and possibilities outside of pure like NFT airdrop delegation. But I think even that has been incredibly necessary. And it's great to see projects start to adopt it. For sure. No, it, it's a very important problem and it's, it has been good to see some of the early adoption with it. Um, uh, so when, when I, like under the hood, right, when I call delegate and I sign that transaction with my cold wallet, like what, what specifically is happening under the hood? Like if you could step us through like what's actually going on, that'd be fantastic. So what's happening under the hood is there's literally a registry just uh, within the smart contract that stores the cold wallet and the hot wallet and proofs that the cold wallet signed it. So you have this you have this big lookup table. You can think of a big Excel sheet or whatnot with the cold wallets on the left side and hot wallets on the right side. And then that gets that gets stored on the blockchain. And then when new projects are trying to integrate this, they can go in and just do a lookup on the registry itself and say, is this hot wallet a delegate for anybody? If so, who? And use that information to approve or deny authorization. So there's a lot of clever stuff we've done surrounding the core mapping to make sure that it's on-chain enumerable, and then there, there can be multiple delegation, bi-directional, multiple tiers of delegation, et cetera. But at, at its core, it's just a, a trusted lookup table. Nice. And I remember you saying somewhere that there's a, an interesting network effect that happens as more projects use this. And I, I definitely see why, right? And I, I'm guessing that your, like the plan here would be as more projects make use of Delegate Cash, right? It makes it such that it becomes more of a standard that's used throughout the space, which makes it even more likely that if someone wants to go through this delegation process, instead of using some some other method, which I'd like you to compare and contrast Delegate Cash to some of the other methods here in a second, but instead of having to, you know, as an app, having to implement all these different methods, ideally everyone just uses something like Delegate Cash and there's a, a network effect there. Am I correct that that's, that's kind of the, the strategy with this? Nailed it. Exactly. So the huge pain point you're trying to alleviate here is that it's 10 times or even 100 times more annoying to go pull out your ledger and verify transactions or signing with it over and over again than it is to, say, use a mobile wallet. So the network effects here are that once a user has delegated once on Delegate Cash for a project, that delegation is permanent. So it can be reused. What that means is you can delegate your wallet once to claim, for example, a Forgotten Runes drop, which happened this Halloween, and then it turns out that Artblocks is doing another airdrop. So you can reuse that initial delegation 
to claim the art blocks drop as well. And so the cold wallet can stay even colder. What this means is that you've built up this base of, I think, I think it's, I think it's 500 or so unique delegators so far, but you have this unique buildup of users who have already delegated. And that is much like liquidity bootstrapping because now whenever a new project wants to come in, they get these 500 users for free. The 500 users don't have to take any additional security protection um, to interact on their hot wallet. So if you think of a Venn diagram with, or a, a bipartite graph, but a Venn diagram with no intersection, where one circle is the users and the other circle is the projects, and you draw a bunch of lines between these two, each new project that onboards brings their users with them. But then those users can take advantage of the other projects onboarded for free, for no additional cost. So because users are overlapping across projects, there are tons of network effects, tons of reuse that makes it even easier than pulling out your cold wallet every single time. Yeah, there's a compounding benefit there to the entire ecosystem, which is really interesting. Um, okay, so you have you have a pretty good write up on this. So I don't you don't feel like you have to spend too much time on it. But how does this compare to some of the other attempts to solve this problem? I mean, I think ENS did something that has kind of similar functionality. I think within if you if you have an ENS, ENS domain, and I think Hot Wallet Proxy is another one that's similar. Can you just give like a quick overview of how what you're doing with Delegate Cash compares to those two? For sure. This people have been circling around this problem for a while, and I appreciate all the effort that others have made towards it. Um, but nobody had really gone for a fully for a fully dependency-free standalone um, approach before this, um, Im- Im- immutable, unowned approach before this. So ENS, for example, lets you set up subdomains if you own the real domain which I think is a very useful feature. Um, but it doesn't necessarily scale to smart contracts per se. And there's also a lot of subscription dependency of you need to keep renewing the domain, things can get moved around, et cetera. So um, build, building on top of ENS, I think, is a cool idea, but more interested in a fully standalone set up here that could be deployed on any EVM chain. When it comes to Wenu Labs's hot wallet proxy, I think they took a good initial stab at the problem as well. But several features that make Delegate Cash better. Um, Delegate Cash is fully immutable compared to being a, an upgradable proxy contract. Um, Delegate Cash also supports Tiered level of delegation, tiered levels of delegations, so you can delegate for an entire wallet, uh, for an entire contract, or for a specific token. Uh, much better on-chain enumeration. Delegate Cash supports multiple delegation. So I think I think all of these are good starts, but ultimately a standard has to encompass a sufficient number of use cases and DC. I would say is the only one that does. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I think the immutability with something that's as much of a public good as this is, is pretty important. But how do you, how do you, so on the immutability side, some people 
ask us, like to ask our guests, what they where they where they fall on this spectrum of every smart contract should be immutable, and uh, upgradability is really important just in case something happens, or if you want to kind of like take the mindset of just shipping and upgrading as you go. Uh, like, do you have do you have a take more generally speaking on whether most smart contracts should be fully immutable or upgradable? Great question. I've done it all, I would say. I've shipped fully immutable stuff. I've shipped fully upgradable stuff. And I've shipped immutable stuff that got hacked. So I've, I've been through the full spectrum of pain points. Um, my, my perspective is that the only real public goods that will win out in the long term will have to be immutable and decentralized. We also have a lot. We also have several focuses that because of their newness and because we haven't fully explored the risks or the needs yet, um, it's highly likely that immutable approaches will get superseded. So for, for example, uh, a, a lending protocol to take us back there needs to be able to update loan to value ratios um, to, to account for risks in the market. Um, whereas Uniswap does not need to be upgraded ever. Uh, v2 is not going to break. So I think there are, there, there are kind of two perspectives in favor of the upgradable side. The first, the first being, what if we made a mistake and need to fix it? And the second being a more philosophical, this is not the best, therefore we will probably have to change it in the future. Um, and I, I, I sympathize with both. On the first, it really sucks when you ship bugs. And on the second, this is, this is obviously true. But ultimately, the, the, the crypto ethos is about giving people control over their own bearer assets. And that's never really the case if something's just controlled by a multi-sig or an EOA. So I'd say that targeting actual immutable protocols is harder but more rewarding than, than the opposite. Um, People have people have confidence that what you built isn't going to change, and you also it also requires you to it requires protocol users to opt in to upgrades. Um, so say say that there's a delegate cache v two, then that would be an an upgrade per se, but one that people could choose whether to start you whether to start using or to remain on the original. Just the same as people can choose whether they like Uniswap V3 or Uniswap V2 better. So I'd say that I have a lot of sympathy for the upgradability arguments. Um, and, and I've shipped upgradable stuff myself. So this wording is directed at me as much as anyone else. But it feels, it feels weaker. It feels like a stepping stone when you haven't really figured out what you want to do or how you're going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. It's definitely contextual as well. Yeah. I'm curious. Um, so on, so sort of on this, right. Maybe, maybe a sort of balance between the two. And I think this is, you know, maybe what some teams, um, intend to, or, or have intended to do where, um, you know, maybe you, you have an upgradable protocol in the beginning, so you can, you know, rapidly iterate, you know, maybe go for bug fixes, things like this. Right. But then, um, 
you know, provided that, that it's implemented, you know, you can always sort of revoke that, um, you know, that authority to, to upgrade in the future, right. And make, making it effectively immutable. Um, not, I don't know how often people actually do this, right. Like I, I'm not aware of like a ton of cases where, you know, that, that power was, um, you know, actually revoked there. But what do you think about a sort of approach like that, where, you know, you can kind of go in with this, this upgradability and, um, sort of this like rapid iteration that you see a lot of other, really a lot of crypto startups doing, right? But then you know the, having that option there to one day just say, all right, that's enough. It's in a good place. Let's let's stop here. Mm-hmm. I think that can be a happy middle ground. The danger, of course, is that good intentions can shift and get abused. Um, but I've I've actually done that myself. So on one on one new DeFi launch, for example there we'd done our best to ensure that things were safe and whatnot but just the sheer scale of funds that were being dealt with and nobody felt comfortable enough to quite stake their life on it yet so did a phased whitelisted rollout where initially only eoas could enter only eoas and whitelisted smart contracts could interact and so this shut off, say, flash loan attack vectors or more complex attack vectors that could be executed in in an external smart contract with a one-way toggle to, to disable this whitelist and make it interactable by anyone um, forever. Um, and so did, a, did, did several months of a guarded launch phase where only EOAs could interact and then saw that things hadn't been hacked yet and secured additional audits opened it up to all. So I do think that approach is definitely, I'd say, messier on the ops ops and coding and trust side, but it is a viable middle ground. Makes sense. Makes sense. I think that's good advice, and I appreciate you sharing some of your your personal experience with it. Um, on the side of actually like building contracts, right? So Delegate Cash is an example of uh, a set of contracts that, that's probably going to be used by lots and lots of devs in the space. So you had to really think through the naming. You had to think through like the effectively like the API design of what this was going to be, what it was going to look like, and what the experience was going to be like for developers building on top of it, right? And I think there are a lot of people that listen to this that are either working at protocols or working on protocols. They, they want to be used by other people. So I would love your thoughts as someone who's who's done a lot of engineering work in their career uh, on API development in general. Are there any, you know, is there is there any advice at all you have about building contracts or APIs that are really really good experiences for other developers to build on? Mm-hmm. Simplify, simplify, simplify. The, the I think the midwit trap of code development is to stack as many specialized features and as much difficult code and as many fancy interfaces into a project as you can just to, to show that you're capable because it is, it is impressive that you know how to do these things compared to a novice coder. But then the real advanced trick is how do you make something not so complicated that you can't find a bug in it, but so simple that there are, that nobody so simple that it's understandable by everyone. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'm perfect at this yet, but trying, 
you, if you're trying to build a key building block of the space, other people's attention is the scarcest resource. And so things have to be both dead simple to understand and dead simple to implement without ways to screw it up. So one argument that I've heard, for example, is if you have a simple API and then somebody comes in and says, hey, there's this weird edge case that 1% of users might use. We should stick it in there. And initially, it seems like there's no harm because A, you haven't, you haven't broken any existing functionality. And B, if this turns out to not be what people need, then they can just choose to not use it. So what's the harm in adding this, in adding this complex edge case? But it turns out the harm is in the attention. People come to your website or come to your documentation, and instead of there being one clear way to do things, now there are seven ways. And they have to go consult outsized resources to figure out what the trade-offs are of each, blah, blah, blah. So it's actually, I think, a sign of excellence. And I would point out Stargate, for example, the, the Layer Zero Bridge as a shining example of this, that heavy simplification towards what people really need is the sign of great code and great APIs. Yeah, it's like the bell curve meme. You should make a bell curve meme for Twitter. <laughs> Just make it easy yeah. on both sides and then no, some kind of complicated thing in the middle. Yeah, that, that's a great way of thinking about it. And I think you're right That'd there. be beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that'd be cool. But I think that's excellent advice. Um, on, on the side of like, again, this, this community standard stuff. Uh, so we at Superfluid, we have some people on our team that are, have drafted up, uh, drafted up an EIP. Right, try to take something we've built and, and make it standard in you know across the space. You have an EIP out, I think, with regards to either delegate cache or something related to it. I would love to just a maybe get the background on what the EIP is, and I'd also like to understand what your experience has been like drafting and garnering support for that EIP. Do you have any 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 high level advice for people that are looking to do the same? Yeah. EIP is a high-level grouping that I think is better separated into two subcategories. The first being we're making an actual change to the EVM. We want to add this opcode. And that, that is very, very, very hard to do. And the second being, hey, we have an idea for a community standard. We're going to publish it on the Ethereum Magicians website. So I've, I've, I've done both. Um, I was pushing... Decently hard. I can't even remember what it was now. I think I think I was pushing for an opcode that let you say which transaction in the block you were. So like block dot um, tx number would be one if you were the first transaction. It could be 130 if you were just somewhere in the middle, and so on. For I think user protection and seeing if they were getting sandwiched or not. That one just never, I think, didn't, didn't get the traction it needed. Um, on With Delegate Cash made the second community standard. And that was more of pushing out the interface and saying, hey, people should adopt this common interface. I think it's a bit of an interesting case. First, I think Wilkins Chung from Manifold was the one who actually drafted and drafted and put it out there. So can't say, can't say this was all me. But 
Bill Cash is an interesting one because it's best used as a singleton registry instance where there's just one of it and everybody uses the same one. Then like a Uniswap B2 style interface where there are lots of forks of the same decks and but they all use at different places and they all use the same interface. So in terms of I, I would say just that the EIP process is brutal and unforgiving and you have to drum up a lot of support. Um almost like a grassroots political campaign if you want stuff to go anywhere. And that happens on traditional media platforms rather than Ethereum magicians. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've kind of been somewhat passively uh, involved with the, with the transient storage opcodes and it's, it's pretty political. It's actually very surprising to see like how, like how in depth these conversations go. Right. And it's, Honestly, it's it's a little intimidating, right? Because you have these people that have decades of experience that you know know so much about these machines, and it's just it's they're hard conversations, you know. Um, and you get I've, like they're still trying to deprecate self destruct in the year twenty twenty two, and you come in, you have people like, no, I run an MEV bot that depends on this. I'll lose, I'll lose my livelihood. Like what this this is literally one annoying thing. We stuck it on in there on accident. Nobody's supposed to actually be using it. But you have these two guys that yeah, or will spend their life campaigning against even obvious good changes. So I can't I what's the opposition like on transient storage? Uh yeah. So I guess the the quick rundown is is against says that it adds uh too much complexity to things like formal verifiers and fuzzers. Um and then it also adds complexity to the languages. So uh, Huff and Viper already support transient storage through some like low-level interactions, just a built-in function, t-store, t-load. Um, Solidity, on the other hand, so there's a fork that allows you to do it with Yule, like inline assembly, which works. But if you want to get uh, sort of like dynamic, uh, dynamically sized uh, data, then you're basically going to need, you know, you're either going to need to write a lot of assembly or you're going to have to use the transient keyword, um, you know, like struct transient variable name, right? Like is how you would declare that. So there's just a lot of complexity that comes with that. Um, and then I think there was something else. I, I want to say that there were some complaints that maybe the um, actual specification wasn't fully fleshed out and needed a little bit more work, but it is a candidate for Shanghai now. So um, yeah, pretty hopeful for it overall. Nice. Yeah, we'll have to see. The less assembly scratch pad <laughs> voodoo magic, the better. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Yeah, so be careful out there, kids. Before you get involved in a uh, an EIP battle, you better do your research because someone will uh, someone will come in hot and, and, and roast you. Uh, okay, so getting into even more general things now, right? I think some of your advice on API design was really good. And same thing with smart contract security. Uh, one thing we like to ask people that come on that have written a lot of, a lot of smart contracts, have built a lot, have built a lot of projects of their own, is uh, whether or not you have any particular design patterns or optimizations that you built in somewhere that you feel very proud of that you like, that you like to call out. Uh, could be anywhere. It could be in delegate cash stuff. It could be somewhere else. Uh, anything you like to call out, feel free to do so. That's a good question. I think nothing particularly comes to mind. I mean, I'm reasonably proficient in all the gas optimization tricks everybody knows and loves. 
um, whether that's struct packing or bit masking or whatnot. I think I wrote uh, wrote a whole article explainer on the different types of upgradable contracts um, and when you when you should use each of them. Ironic because I'm now arguing for full immutability wherever possible, but good to know the enemy. <laughs> um, oh yeah, maybe those pieces of work. Cool. Yeah, I'll link to that article on upgrades in our show notes, along with the royalties piece that I mentioned earlier. Uh, what about what about things that you think are often misunderstood, or maybe any common mistakes you see amongst maybe like more junior Solidity devs and people in the space? Um, common mistakes. So there's, I mean, if we're if we're, if we're listing off just random ra- random tidbits, I think one fun thing to know is that when you make a variable public, its read function also gets exposed. So there's no need to write a separate getter like you would in Java or something like that. Yeah, good to you can you can pack timestamps into smaller, I think it's 32 bits instead of 256. And then you can pack that into larger 256 word um or in into 256 bit words for structs. Um but in, in general, I think that the tool chain you use is more important than you'd think. I know there are there are some people I'll spar with on Twitter who still do a significant amount of their development in Remix, which is an online IDE instead of a local environment. Um, there are people who will use test nets to run their test suite. Like instead of writing automated tests, they will deploy a smart contract to Gurley and then they will go in and click buttons on Etherscan and then see if it did what they wanted it to do. And that's, I mean, that's fine as a, as a last, as a last step before you entrust it with millions of dollars. But for the development process, I think an automated test suite and using the right tool chain and get off, um, get, get into foundry, (laughs) stop, stop using more archaic frameworks can be useful. Are you mostly Foundry now then? I think, so I didn't, I didn't look too deeply, but I, I think that the bored and dangerous repo you have on your GitHub is, a, is definitely a Foundry repo. Did you do delegate cache in Foundry or was that a hard hat project? Yeah, those have both been in the past couple of months. So those are both Foundry. Um, I mean, I, I have hard hat and truffle stuff out there, I think, but um, all my active development is now focused on using that tool chain. Nice. And while, while we're on it, actually, what, what was the bored and dangerous repo? What's going on in there? I saw some interesting things in the readme, but I'd let, I wanted to let you explain it. Yeah. So back backstory there, if you cycle back 15 months now, um, there's a project called Jenkins the Valet, which the whole backstory was there's a board ape who is a valet at the yacht club. And is and gets told all the secret information and writes a book about his experiences. So co, co co-founders of this actually went out and made um a whole physical book and enlisted a New York Times bestseller, Neil Strauss, and wrote a whole bo- illustrated book about the board apes. Um and then as a as a companion drop to that, there were they were um came out with 
virtu- virtual NFT copies of the book that would then give you token gating to be able to read the real thing. Um, and so basically over oversubscribed demand, couldn't figure out the optimal pricing model. I came in, recommended that they run a refundable.auction despite a lot of people having denigrated that because all Dutch auctions up to that point had failed. The most famous visible one being Aku Dreams, um, which was, I think, a major league baseball player made something about astronauts. Um, but they, they raised $32 million and then their withdrawal function hadn't off by one error. So it got locked. So all $32 million got locked in the contract forever. And it's still there, just locked, because no one can get it out. I think now with the ETH price drop, it's hovering around 10 million. So I don't know if that makes you feel better or worse. Oh, that's consolation. <laughs> there is a lot of fear around Dutch auctions and how they were broken. But my opinion was that the mechanism was not broken. You just got to not hire devs off Fiverr. Um, so came in, wrote a, yeah, wrote a refundable trustless Dutch auction that both calculated the refunds, but also spit them out autonomously instead of needing like any user could claim their own. Um, but it could also, it could also be batched by an admin and, but couldn't be stolen by even a malicious admin. So, and it then launched and it went perfectly. I think was able to refund thousands of people trustlessly in under three minutes after it sold out. So proud of that. That's amazing. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you had any resources on refundable Dutch auctions when we when we hopped off the uh, the episode, but I guess <laughs> the resources to go look at that repo, uh, which is pretty. Dope. Yeah, I did. I went. I went ahead and tried to split things out. The idiosyncratic <clears throat> code of that drop and just a general refundable Dutch auctions template. So it should be there in the repo. I love it. Okay, so so la- last couple questions for me as we as we wrap up here. Um, the first one before we ask, like one of our basically our last questions, is your. I think your Twitter bio. Last time I checked, it says you're working on something new. You might even be hiring for it. Do you want to tease that here, or do you want to keep it private? It's up to you. But this is a, maybe a good opportunity to talk about it if you want to. Yeah, I think keep that private at the moment. Um, got some exciting initiatives, I would say. So, yeah, launch launch when it launches. Cool. No, respect that. Uh, I'm sure it'll be cool, whatever it is. Uh, but the uh, the last the last big question is, um, you know, we ask this to everyone as as we wrap these up. But you know, let's say we we look ahead at the industry right now. You know, we haven't we haven't talked about any of the mania that that's going on as we record this in November 2022. That's by design. But if if we look at like the future of what crypto looks like, you know, in the early 2030s and throughout the rest of the 2020s. What do you hope we achieve? Like, what do you hope things look like in in ten years after we all keep building and put our heads down and really just get things done? Um, do you have like a high level vision for what you you hope things look like, uh, or no? Great question. I'd say, I'd say crypto is all about permissionlessness and unlocking the other, a unlocking the other ninety percent of the world. He doesn't necessarily have the connections that uh, that an uh, that an accredited American with with a college degree might have. 
Um, there are so many, there are so many smart people out there and just by, ver- by virtue of where people are, where people are born or their economic situation or prejudice or prejudices for various other surrounding factors. I think people don't get the opportunities they deserve. So one of that's one of the big appeals of crypto to me is it opens up a level playing field where anyone, no matter who or where or what or how they are, can can come in and publish stuff and use stuff. And so it turns what has been this cloistered this cloistered Americentric that taps into maybe tens of millions of people's talent or whoever, whoever can game the system properly into a much more open system that both lets people compete to build better products, but also lets everyone benefit from better products. Um, the, the, the downsides of uncomfortable competition are more than outweighed by the better world that comes when you get everybody's talents into the mix. So I'd hope that we get everything we need to make that a reality. There are lots of, of sub-niches. I think privacy is critical. I think better tools for true self-custody are necessary. Um, I think that there, I think, I, I'd love to see things scale beyond just pure finance. That's more of a bandwidth constraint than anything else right now is that we only have so much block space and so only so much can get put on chain. But in general, I just hope it leads to a more open, permissionless world. Great answer. There you go. For those of you listening look for, that are looking for something to build, Fubar just gave a couple of things right there. But listen, we really appreciate you coming on. This has been a really awesome conversation. Thanks so much. It's been great talking. Absolutely. And where can people find you online? Is it just at 0xFubar? Is that right? Yep. Twitter is probably the best place to reach me at 0xFoobar. Awesome. Well, thank you again. We appreciate it. Have a great one.